I still recall from the books I read All the great empires built in my head But every year I raise one more I bought it all and I dropped off But I'm, I'm still seeking something I'm still seeking something Hello and welcome to another chronologically challenged episode of Seeking Tumnus, the podcast where we typically flip-flop between journeys into the savage world of contemporary young adult fiction, and, on alternate episodes, we go back in the annals of time, seeking literary treasures from our youth. This episode, it turns out we can't count, so we're doing a post-potter pick from Patrick. Pow! My name is Laurie, and I'm joined by my fellow hosts... The Bracing Bree. Hello. The Precious Patrick Moon. Hi. And the Kempt Keith Rowe. Or unkempt as it is. Thank you. Hello. You looked pretty kempt when I saw you the other day. <laughs> it was only a brief encounter. Kempt AF. <laughs> this episode, seeing as a monster calls wasn't enough teenage trauma for our Patrick, he has queued up Perks of Being a Wallflower by Stephen Shabosky. Before we go on, a brief spoiler warning. To spoil means to diminish or destroy the pleasure, interest or beauty of something. Don't let this podcast ruin your read. Thank you, Bree. Keith, take us back to page one, won't you please? August 25, 1991. Dear friend, I'm writing to you um, because she... No, I'm not um, going to do that. <laughs> um. No, thank you. (laughs) Dear friend, I'm writing to you because you said you listen and understand and didn't try to sleep with that person at that party, even though you could have. Please don't try to figure out who she is, because then you might figure out who I am. And I really don't want you to do that. I'll call people by different names or generic names because I don't want you to find me. I didn't enclose a return address for the same reason. I mean nothing bad by this, honest. I just need to know that someone out there listens and understands and doesn't try to sleep with people, even if they could have. I need to know that these people exist. I think you of all people would understand that. Because I think you of all people are alive and appreciate what that means. At least I hope you do, because other people look to you for strength and friendship. And it's that simple. At least that's what I've heard. So, this is my life. And I want you to know that I'm both happy and sad, and I'm still trying to figure out how that could be. I try to think of my family as a reason for me being this way, especially after my friend Michael stopped going to school one day last spring and we heard Mr Vaughan's voice on the loudspeaker. Boys and girls, I regret to inform you that one of our students has passed on. We will hold a memorial service for Michael Dobson during assembly this Friday. I don't know how news travels around school and why it is very often right. Maybe it was in the lunchroom. It's hard to remember. But Dave with the awkward glasses told us that Michael killed himself. His mum played bridge with one of Michael's neighbours and they heard the gunshot. Let's leave it there. Man. Page one. Pouring out for my homies. <laughs> How did that hit you, Pat? Me, I found it good, a little bit confusing towards the beginning with the, I don't know who you are exactly, but you didn't sleep with the girl that you could have slept with or something or other. But it got really straight into the the business end of stuff didn't it it was it was pretty intense but in an enthralling way 
What about you, Bree? I agree. I really liked the format. I liked the way that this is introduced through letters. We, I guess we don't yet know that that's going to continue. I didn't realise that was going to be the format of the book, actually. I was a little bit anxious about that. I think the first one reading through it, that this was going to be a whole book full of correspondence because that's not typically my thing. But Well, I'll be interested to hear what you thought of the rest of the book shortly then. But this one really grabbed me. At the beginning, reading that, dear, thinking if this is going to be an entire book of correspondence, is this going to transport me back to a very poorly written very early teenage book, but then the themes get stronger and stronger through that initial opening and it really grabbed me. What about you, Laurie? Yeah, I was a little bit worried by those first few sentences too, but it got stronger and we don't see too much of that clunkiness later. So yeah, I was pretty intrigued. The only thing that really stood out for me though in those first few lines was the principal just announcing the death over the loudspeaker. Like, when <laughs> yeah. there was a death at my school, everyone went to an assembly and there were counsellors standing nearby and people that were close friends with the student were pulled aside first and had appropriate counselling and advice and had their parents come and all that sort of thing. Seemed a bit rude. It is a little bit. <laughs> they might have done that first, to be fair. Like, that might have just been the general public announcement after that point. But Charlie was one of his best friends, wasn't he? And... Uh, he found out via loudspeaker, which is pretty rough. Good points, both of you. <laughs> yeah, uh, it was just a bit odd. But no, the actual writing itself, a bit clunky in the first few sentences, but picked up, yeah, right into the business, like Pat said. So what about you? I was wondering whether it was this sort of cheap intrigue at the start, making us wonder who he's writing this letter to and whether it would play out something like Lorinda, which was similarly structured in that it contained a lot of these letters. But yeah, it was intriguing enough and it moved on quickly enough from that that I was very interested. How about we hear what happens next, Laurie? Yeah, sure. So the book continues in the epistolary format. Did I say that right? I think I did. I believe so. That is, as a series of letters to... Someone? Us, perhaps? We learn more about the author, Charlie, who is slim on friends, fairly clever, but highly introverted, and who has, if you'll excuse my French, been through some serious shit. Charlie's one good friend had recently committed suicide, his beloved but troubled aunt had passed away after living with his family for a time, and as we start reading his letters, Charlie is having to start high school in the early 1990s. It's hard for Charlie being a wallflower and emotionally delicate, but he manages to bond with his high school English teacher, who sees Charlie's potential for writing, which develops throughout the book. He also manages to befriend two seniors, Patrick and Sam, step-siblings, who are quirky but fun fringe types. We follow, through the keen observations of Charlie's letters, a series of -of coming-of-age events and crises that are at once deep and personal, yet relatable in their universality. Charlie discovers love, crushing hard for Sam, drugs and alcohol, the awkwardness of an unexpected and untenable relationship. He faces loneliness, isolation, violent redemption of broken friendships, half-naked thespian antics, and the infinite joy of being young in the right time, at the right place, with the right people, underscored by the perfect soundtrack. There are so many threads that weave through this book, binding the reader tighter and tighter to the lives of these 90s teens, but perhaps the most significant are the continual flashbacks, the dark thoughts associated with Charlie's aunt. At first, we're led to believe that the PTSD-like trauma that Charlie faces throughout the book is the guilt resulting from his aunt dying in a car accident when going to buy Charlie a Christmas present when he was young. 
But near the end of the book, when finally having a sexual encounter with Sam, the girl he has loved since the beginning chapters, we come to learn that his aunt has sexually assaulted Charlie. At this final unlocking of memory and understanding, he falls into a catatonic despair and spends some time in hospital. But with the support of his friends and shocked family, he begins to look forward to a future in which he is ready to participate. It's so much more than that, but I'm sick of my voice, Patrick. So let's hear how you decided on Perks. I chose Perks because I saw the movie and it was freaking awesome. And that's that's pretty much the only reason that this book has materialised here at the time it has. I saw it, I just watched it a few weeks ago and I thought it was absolutely stunning as a character piece. The main trio of actors of Sam, Patrick and Charlie were just freaking phenomenal. And the, the dynamic that these kids had and the emotional heart that the movie had was something else. And so it was one of those ones where... I immediately watched it and said to myself, I need to read this book because there's clearly some impressive source material at the root of the film here and decided to subject you guys to it along with myself. I don't know how that went. How do you feel about it, Keith? Yeah, I was really looking forward to reading this book. In fact, I had previously chosen it myself and had it on our list, but then removed it in favour of something else. So I have to congratulate Pat on his fantastic taste. But that was before (laughs) I'd actually read the book. So... And before I'd read the book too, so I don't think anybody can make any sort of grand statements about taste. True, but you had watched the movie that was screen written by the writer, so... Oh, did he write the film? Yeah. He did a freaking... Well, maybe I'll save that, but I think he did a really good job. Oh, spoiler. Are we going to talk about the movie first or last? Well, last, I guess. (laughs) We'll wrap it up with that. I haven't even finished the movie yet, so... Having now finished the book, though, I'm very happy to once again congratulate Pat on his fantastic taste. Now, I'm not going to be particularly critical in my appraisal of this book, and that's not because I don't think it holds up to critical assessment. It's entirely because this book for me was about being caught in the world and living in the moment. And in the moments that I was reading this book, I loved it. Before I get into the reasons for that, There was one moment in the book in particular that really resonated with me and I was hoping with Laurie, but my heart was dashed. I'm going to read the section here and see if it rings any bells for Laurie. Sam tapped her hand on the steering wheel. Patrick held his hand outside of the car and made airwaves, and I just sat between them. After the song finished, I said something. I feel infinite. And Sam and Patrick looked at me like I said the greatest thing they ever heard. Because the song was that great and because we all really paid attention to it. Five minutes of a lifetime were truly spent, and we felt young in a good way. I've since bought the record, and I would tell you what it was, but truthfully it's not the same unless you're driving to your first real party and you're sitting in the middle seat of a pickup with two nice people when it starts to rain. Anything, Laurie? (laughs) Yeah, I'm with you now, Keith, and I should explain to the listeners. When we were younger men, would you say we were maybe 19 or...? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we must have been 19. You were a couple of years younger, I guess. Is that right? Yeah, maybe I was 18, so thereabouts. We went on a bit of a road trip from our homes in New South Wales down to the nation's capital of uh, Canberra. Are you wild animals? I know. We went to buy fireworks and (laughs) (laughs) And pornography. (laughs) No, 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 no. We, We were going to Melbourne. Oh, it was Melbourne. Yeah, yeah. Wrong trip. We did go past Canberra. Oh, yes, true, true. And we went past the giant sign that said, my ass. Yes. (laughs) Anyway, there was one particular 
song that we all enjoyed in the car. We sang at the top of our voices and it was an extremely memorable moment. But yes, I should have recalled instantly, Keith. The only problem with that story is try as we might for the last decade, (laughs) we can't remember what this amazing song was. (laughs) And every now and again, we'll pop up this 80s or 90s classic and say, was it this? Yes. I'm like, <laughs> We've got like a tenacious D situation here. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. It really was the greatest song in the world and we loved it. It was like the best moment ever. But all of the uh, passengers and, and the driver in the car just have no idea what the song was, but it was just a magical moment anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, as long as you can remember the magic, that's all fine. Yeah. That's right. That's what this paragraph captures, that feeling that the song itself maybe isn't so important, or if it is, it doesn't matter outside of that moment. So I'm getting over it based on that paragraph. Did you stand up in the back of the car, Laurie, and <laughs> spread your arms out? And I think I was driving, actually. It was this clapped-out old LPG-powered Datsun that I'm surprised made it. Yeah, it was very rattly, and there was no danger of speeding on the trip down there because it just wasn't possible. That's right. There were two cars and the other car that wasn't quite as clapped out got a bit fast and ended up getting a speeding ticket, but there was no chance for my car. (laughs) There is something about driving at night, driving in the rain, driving at night in the dark, in the country, with the music blaring. I don't know what it is, but even by myself, that's always something that where I have just felt so amazing and I connected so well to that scene as well because it's like... I don't know, it's just something else. I don't know what it is. Mm, I agree. Part of my early driving days, getting around in that same Datsun probably, with a sound system that was worth a bit more than the car at that point, <laughs> and just blasting out Rammstein in this country town. <laughs> <laughs> what, what? <laughs> a little bit on the fringes of society, yeah. <laughs> One of those kids driving down the main street. Uh, no, I never did peelies, as we call them. <laughs> All the old people like looking up from their lattes as you hoon past to the sound of door. The last. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah, good times, good times. But we've probably all got memories like that. Like I've got one where I was singing at the top of my lungs in peak hour traffic. So you all know what that's like. You're just crawling, crawling, crawling. And this guy in the car next to you had obviously been crawling at the same sort of pace and he wrote down on his little note, you look like you're having fun, flipped it over, have a great day because I'm clearly rocking out to whatever the song was. So we've all got those sorts of memories. I do that so regularly now (laughs) and like the awful, so, so into Hamilton, I I do a bit of the rap hands in my car, which is (laughs) humiliating in in retrospect when I realise that like everybody could see me. I'll be like (laughs) sitting there parked with like, Four four lanes around me of people who can all like clearly hear that I've got this shit turned up as loud as the stereo could possibly allow as I look really, really white doing my <laughs> I'm not throwing away my shot. It's embarrassing now that I think of it. Vanilla rice mark too. But so good in the moment. <laughs> Definitely. And that'll be me as soon as I get my hands on a Book of Mormon soundtrack. <laughs> Although without the, you know the rap hands. Yeah. Maybe spirit fingers. A lovely aside. So you liked it? Yes. Let me get back to my long list of points about why I like this book. Charlie's characterization was really believable, and I'm not even going to attempt any sort of diagnosis or discussion on his psyche because I liked him. I found him relatable in this kind of abstract sense. Did you feel that he seemed maybe just a, his his writing seemed maybe just a touch too young for 
his chronological age and the way that perhaps his teachers and whoever would talk about him. Yeah, I, I get that. Maybe not his writing. His writing was, he kind of made a point that the writing was simplified because there's no need to complicate things unnecessarily. And maybe that's playing to the imaginary audience of the or the recipient of the letters as well. But yeah, I, I know what you're saying there. Like he certainly had a bit of naivety about him. Hmm. But I think that's exactly what was coming through was that naivety and it's such an easily consumable book that it means that it's able to be enjoyed by, as Keith said, that huge range of ages. I think it really just speaks to the masses. I like that. I did wonder about it too, Patrick, the balance. If you'd erred on the wrong side and you'd made him too clever, then you wouldn't have got that naivety. You have another one of those books where you're like, these are unbelievably precocious 15-year-olds here as opposed yeah, to... Yeah, right, yep. exactly. Yep. Mm. Yeah. And it sort of gives you an avenue to have him develop as well if it starts like that. I know the writing didn't really increase in complexity, but certainly his understanding of things did. That was actually something I was hoping to see and I wondered whether it was going to start occurring, was whether his writing would develop and become more complex and become more nuanced as the book went on. And maybe it did a little bit, but not not to the extent that maybe I thought it would. That was a nice lead up to my next point, which is basically, yeah, the simple language was clear and easily consumed. So, Brie put it in the same words. And despite the this almost intentional staccato structure in some parts of it, it was just so easy to read. I just blew through this book. As Laurie pointed out, a novel that is composed of letters is called an epistolary novel, which I had not heard that term before, but I found this was a really effective way of writing a first-person perspective book. It adds this degree of underlying complexity as opposed to a view directly tapped into their mind because you're wondering are they filtering things for the audience they're writing to. It just adds a bit of a point of difference to some of the more traditional first-person perspective books. You guys have obviously been let down by your education. In the, the Catholic education system, it's all about the epistles. <laughs> <laughs> Any theories on who the letters were being written to, if anyone? I know Blurry sort of touched on it in his synopsis. I read a few things about it, so I'm not really making guesses, but one idea that was just you, the reader. Another was that it was uh, like the boy who died or the brother of the boy who died or something like that. Mm. Do you have some alternate theories? It's strange because it gives very particular details, almost like it definitely is someone, and I wonder whether that's just to sort of make the lie convincing if it's written just for the sake of telling the story or if it's written kind of in this strange way to the reader. I think it is written just for the sake of telling the story, but it's mm. also written just for the sake of telling the story to a specific person who he has heard tell of in one of his classes and who sounds like a reasonably good dude and so he's like mm. okay i'll write a letter to this person because they sound like someone that i could get behind but with the audience as kind of a proxy for that person yeah that makes perfect sense and that's the decision i arrived at the whole letter structure is a great way of getting a really personal story told and it allowed the free movement through time and it opens up a really wide cast of supporting characters it was really the perfect vehicle for character development and i didn't really need to know who it was written to so even though I did think about it it didn't really bother me that it was a up in the air question obviously intentionally what did annoy me a little bit when I think about it is there's no Charlie there's no Patrick there's no Sam they're all pseudonyms but anyway that's very minor <laughs> <laughs> I really like how we saw everything through Charlie's eyes in like this unfiltered way as we came to learn there was a lot of underlying complexity and influencing factors affecting the way in which Charlie dysfunctionally interacts with the world and that bleeds through into the letters 
it's a coming of age book, but it has a bit of a twist to it. It gave us this voyeuristic portal into the lives of the people around Charlie, the emotional Patrick with his confident, self-assured exterior, the self-loathing, closeted Brad fighting his internal demons in a struggle against his sexuality, the beautiful and warm-hearted Sam, Patrick's sister living in a dream world. The characters were really different. There was a nice balance of diversity in the characters in one sense, maybe not in others, but I liked that they balanced each other out and that we saw them through Charlie's eyes. They're all kids that you'd want to be friends with. Yeah, I think because of that diversity, it really makes it relatable to a wide audience. Mm. They all seem like genuinely amazing people, which was, I suppose, it's not necessarily reality of friendship groups, but they were really raw, like painfully raw people. And it was beautiful, I think, that kind of intimate relationship that you develop with them with that fragility and that rawness and that lack of pretense that gets conveyed by Charlie in his letters. Mm. Yeah, that's right. He took away some of that from what they would have had because they were this fringe group of people that, in a sense, could look in on themselves and understand a bit about themselves in a, in a way that maybe is a bit too mature for their age. But at the same time, they had these obvious character flaws that had played some part in their characters and yeah, I really like that. It was good. This is going to be an obvious point, but Stephen Shabosky, he's a writer, obviously, but he's primarily a screenplay writer, and this was his first novel, and I don't think he's actually written a novel since this. He's probably still too busy counting his money from this one. <laughs> Quite possibly. And I think it kind of explains the very cinematic nature of many of the scenes in the book. You would expect that this would then translate to a really good movie adaptation, so we'll talk about that later. And Pat's already spilled his beans on that one, but <laughs> he does also say that the book is semi-autobiographical, which which is probably why there's a nice baseline of truth to the characters. The book, it's broken up into four parts but and a brief epilogue, but for me, I largely separate it into two distinct parts. The first where Charlie's role as a wallflower is celebrated. He's able to observe and digest information, trying to gain an understanding of how people work, what they want, what they need. His search for understanding will ideally reflect back and provide insight into his own character. The second part shows that this withdrawn approach is not without a cost to Charlie, and that's in two ways. Firstly, there's a weight from having all this knowledge. Like knowing the pain that Patrick is going through because of Brad makes Charlie behave in unnatural ways to try to make Patrick feel better. Instead, as Patrick loses control, so too does Charlie. It's quite tragic watching that unfold. And the second cost is that it denies Charlie the ability to take control. Thankfully, he begins to realise that it's not enough to merely observe and try and appease the wants of others. He has to start living for himself, experiencing and more importantly, purposefully interacting with life. This is the second part of the book. Through this, he forges his own identity and we have the perfect circle of young adult coming of age fantasy. Or do we? Well, not really, because instead Charlie has a complete breakdown and ends up hospitalised when his sexual awakening with Sam results in the repressed memories of his molestation at the hands of his auntie coming to the fore. Thankfully, we get some hints that there is happiness ahead for Charlie, who has finally come to the ultimate realisation that the lives of others can't offer an answer to him. He is the master of his own universe, and he has to resolve... <laughs> Sorry, did I you, forgot I put that in there. deliberately... <laughs> Let me just wedge this comic joke into this serious discussion. Oh, there we go. Go on, Keith. But I do mean it with the utmost sincerity, and he's resolved to make things better. That's kind of the heart of his character is this ongoing passivity and his inability to just talk about what he wants and what 
he needs. I felt like that was the the real journey from the beginning to the end of the book was his being able to identify his needs and desires as a person and being able to express those in a healthy way because whether it be as a victim or whether it be as someone who has other psychological issues that are going on, he's just passive and will accept anything that comes his way. Yeah, we definitely got the most adjusted Charlie at the end of the book, which is where you want the character to go. He had me wondering for a while whether that would happen. It was a little reminiscent of The Outsiders in the ending that there's a lot of negativity about it, but there is that gold shining through. And I'll leave my thoughts with a quote from his last letter. So if this does end up being my last letter... Please believe that things are good with me. And even when they're not, they will be soon enough. And I'll believe the same about you. Those two final letters, the one that concluded the book proper and the one that concluded the epilogue, were both freaking powerful, I thought. It, particularly the, the one at the end of the book without the epilogue. It was it was dark and a little bit scary and a really intense way. I, I got to the end and I thought, holy crap, you're you're going to do that. You're going to end a book on this sort of desperate, dark, uncertain note. And I wasn't sure how I felt about the epilogue at that point, whether that was a cop-out or whether it was something that was desperately needed. And ultimately, I quite liked it, I think, well, with, with that sort of hopeful tone to the concluding page. It's because you feel so much for Charlie. He's a character that you really want to succeed. He's this guy mm. that you really want to to do well, to conquer his demons, to be accepted by his friends, to to participate. You're rooting for him right from the beginning. It's one of those rare ones too where you're rooting for him despite him being just ridiculous and a bit of a prat sometimes. Mm. Oh, thank goodness. I was waiting for someone to say that. <laughs> I really wanted to chip in. I was waiting for Keith to finish his point, but now I'm going to jump in. <laughs> it really was irritating at times, and I felt like a bad person because a lot of the things that were irritating about him in the book, his social dysfunction, his inability to deal with normal social situations and his missteps in that area, are exactly the kind of thing that I've done time and time again. <laughs> and some of the things like the depression and the anxiety that come up to a much, much lesser degree in my own life, I begrudged him. <laughs> and- You're a horrible man. <laughs> Yes, I am horrible. <laughs> you, you haven't kissed the wrong girl, uh, identified the wrong girl as the most beautiful woman in the room and kissed her in front of your partner, have you? No, not quite that bad. <laughs> that is quite disgraceful. That really... But that was part of his social anxiety. He didn't know the right time to, to do things and he'd been dying to get his feelings out there and he saw that as a time to be truthful. But he's so good at reading people otherwise. Yeah, but he's not, though. He's good at reading them and trying to understand them separate to himself. He's not good at reading them and interacting with them. No. Mm. Okay, that's well said. Yes, it's the interaction that's the problem. Yes, he understood that Patrick was having a really tough time with the breakup of his boyfriend, but then allowing Patrick to kiss him on several occasions while drunk, even though neither of them knew it was having any effect on poor Charlie, he, he would just let things that he would he knew wrong happened to him anyway. He was, he was paralysed by that need to please and that social anxiety. He just let his personhood get trampled on by everybody around him. Exactly. He was living in his head entirely. Like, just what's the right thing to do in this situation? What's the right thing to do? What's the right thing to say? And that was the moment he sort of broke free from that. And it was, of course, a horrible time to do it. But it was part of the self-awakening that came after. 
Right. And when Sam sticks it to him near the end of the book, when she says, why didn't you ever tell me what you wanted? You know, why didn't you ever tell me that you love me? Why did you let Patrick kiss you? Why don't you just stand up for yourself and, and do what you perceive to be right? Like that is exactly what I'd been thinking. So I was glad that the author had her saying that as well. Of course, the big caveat to, to all that is when the horrible reveal of what happened to Charlie comes on and you begin to understand the full depth of the PTSD or depression or anxiety, where it all stemmed from, then I had a lot more sympathy. But that was ongoing throughout the book and it wasn't just about people who were victims, it was about people who were abusers and aggressors and all sorts. It, it looked at the fact that there is a story here, there is something behind all of these fucked up interactions that people have with each other and their ruined lives and everything and they all they stem from different places or, or they stem from nowhere at all and you just can't know and that was contrasted as well with people that have had those things happen to them and had come out the end of the tunnel somehow some way mm. it didn't try to explain everything it just put it out there that shit happens basically in this really real since there was the truth behind so many people that was uncovered because Charlie was able to watch and see these deeper interactions. At the same time, it's also just your general coming of age in some ways. I mean, this is a freshman kid. So this is what, a year nine-ish? Is that about right? And the kids that he's befriending are year 12. So they've been through four years of high school where think about year nine here, it's they say that it's that discovery year. The kids really start to rebel, take risks, push boundaries, those sorts of things. It's about learning who you are or starting to learn about who you are in relation to all of these others. And it's a challenging time. What's the social pecking order? All of those sorts of things come into play. And you see that a little bit more through Charlie and how he's trying to find his equilibrium, maybe his his balance amongst this other group who have done some of that, coming to the tail end of it and looking forward to the next chapter in their lives where they're all going off to college and their future and what that means for them, which I think's nice. Yeah, in a sense, it's even harder for him in that environment where they've mm. got their set ways and was told in the way that he came in and out of the group in a sense that they would do their thing and then, oh, there's Charlie oh, Charlie, what have you been up to sort of thing. At times it was almost ignored, but through his presence over time, he really had an impact on most of the group. Laurie, have you finished telling us what you think? Uh, no. Shall I proceed? <laughs> yes, please do. <laughs> <laughs> As you were. The complexity of the characters really worked in this book's favour. There wasn't a single character I can think of except for perhaps the school teacher. I pay attention to school teachers a bit because both of my parents were teachers. It seemed like the school teacher was the only character that didn't have some massive flaw or traumatic event that happened in his life. And I wondered whether Stephen Chbosky had had a great teacher that had really helped him out, if that's part of the autobiographical nature of the book. He also invited a student to come have lunch at his house, though, which was like... Not copacetic. <laughs> I was worried about that. I thought it was going to turn nasty at that point with some kind of... <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah. If it went there, I don't think I could have finished reading it. As it no. turns out, he was just a lovely man, albeit yes. a highly unprofessional one. <laughs> That's right. He was lovely. It was a different time, though. It's like the early 90s. The 90s were a different time? Jesus Christ, man. It was. Very much so. Well, <laughs> they were probably the peak times. <laughs> 90s are like 27 years ago, early 90s. It's a different time. They were a long while ago, but I mean, it's... Not the 50s. I don't think it's a different time in the way that people generally use that terminology, though. Like, 
Yeah, maybe not. Yeah, I mean, so maybe maybe things were a little bit more loose in the nineties. Maybe I'm I'm just taking our twenty teens. Well, I don't think so. Not at my school. You weren't in your. Were you in your teens in the nineties? No, I I will. No, but <laughs> not the early nineties. I'm saying the twenty to the two thousands and teens. I'm mm. I'm sort of projecting this kind of mindset back into the nineties because I feel like things haven't changed dramatically. But I, I could be could be wrong. Yeah, so I was at war during the course of the book. On the one hand... Why have you haven't told us about this? Where were you deployed? <laughs> <laughs> I really had trouble with... I guess in the early stages of the book, I had trouble with the simplicity of the language like we discussed before. But the the storytelling was just phenomenal. It really worked. I'm the kind of guy that can't, can't recite a joke. <laughs> so when I see really good storytelling, it really impresses me. And while the language was simple and I did find Charlie's character flawed and sometimes annoying, the stories that he told and the way he told them really impressed me. So I think that's what won the book over for me for the majority. The ending, whilst I guess we had many, many clues and a long lead up to it, it still was a, a, a not traumatizing, but an emotional experience to see the very rapid decline in his mental health as his friends leave to go off to university. And he's suddenly having this realization and recollection of, of the horrible abuse that happened to him. It was a really, not jarring, but yeah, disturbing part of the book. I felt upset too, in a lot of ways, because Sam is such a fantastic character. She's just freaking brilliant. And I think you do sort of fall a little bit in love with the character of Sam throughout as well. It's one of those those interactions that you have where you're just like, it's such a, a gorgeous relationship that those two have. And it gets to that culmination where really he is saying what he wants finally, where he can say like, I want to be with you and I want this and I want you and I want to have sex with you. And it like that gets fucking robbed from him. Mm, and absolutely, mm. yeah. It's, uh, it's I found this is one of the most emotional books that we have done for me, like personally. Like I've, I just read it and I'm like, this is heartbreaking. Mm. It really, really, really moved me in that way. So you're all rooting for him at that point, and yeah, it's just a robbery, and it's the kind of thing that he will never. Like you don't ever see those two characters ever returning to that emotional spot. Mm. No, because she's yeah. off to university, college, whatever you want to call it, and it's almost like at that moment where he maybe needs his friends the most, they're all off on their next phase in life. Which probably contributes to the depths of his trauma at that point as well. It's mm. Everything for them is off in one direction, and then he has this realisation that just crushes him, mm. I guess. It's something like two months, isn't it, that he's... Catatonic-ish. Yeah. Hmm. Anyway, sorry I interrupted you there, Laurie. No, that's okay. I, I don't really have much more to say than that. As I said, the storytelling was excellent. Charlie's character was flawed but understandable, I guess, when you get to the end. I love the complexity of the characters. No character was perfect, and I really felt that each character was very unique and distinct from each other. They didn't all blur into one. And yet they melded together really well. Yet they worked together as a group really well. Mm-hmm. But, yes, I didn't feel they were all cookie-cutter characters. Mm. I felt like I knew them when the book ended. Yeah, I enjoyed it. It wasn't perfect, but I had a good time. What about you, Bree? 
Same. And I actually came a little bit more prepared for at least some of you to have hated it. (laughs) Who were you thinking? You had your list of defence points, did you? (laughs) Yeah, but I'm coming in last and now you've actually used all of my defence points in really positive, beautiful ways and I thank each and every one of you because I basically concur and there ends the discussion. (laughs) Who were you thinking might have been not into this book? Laurie and you. Oh, me? Mm. Really? Mm. No, this is a character central. Yeah. This is right in his wheelhouse. <laughs> but I thought he'd be like, it's derivative, writing letters, it's no, not well done, rah, rah, rah. So, no, I love the way it's done. I take it all back. <laughs> but mainly Laurie, let's be honest. <laughs> yeah, I was a bit worried about Laurie too, to be honest. <laughs> um, I never had any concerns. Like reading this book, I'm like, there's no way you couldn't like this book. I agree about the book. We will get on to my thoughts on the movie shortly, though, Patrick. Okay. Ooh. I guess what I will say is that usually I leave reading the Seeking Tumness book until reasonably late in the piece because I like to finish the Seeking Tumness book, read something of my own choosing, and then prepare for the next episode. And this one I picked up and then I put it down two days later. I don't think I did anything else for two full days. I am fairly sure, besides, I suppose, feeding my children and putting them to bed regularly. I had a great experience with it. Started it, couldn't put it down, read it late into the night, and I have to get up really early with young children and that still didn't deter me. I was just fascinated by where... Charlie was going to end up and like you have all said before could see him becoming more and more comfortable in himself and in his interactions with people and in his way of living his life that I just kept waiting for that fall. Loved Sam, just thought can she be my best friend (laughs) and heartbroken at the end in some ways but loved it. Great experience. Thanks Patrick. No workers. The movie however now, hang on, hang on, hang on. Patrick is still in the queue. Is he? He is, yes. Damn it. I thought we'd already done it. All right, Patrick. <laughs> You've gotten pretty good reviews. How did you find it? I liked it a lot and I don't have anything to say above and beyond what you guys have said. Let's talk about the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Motherfucker. <laughs> the movie is short. It's only 90 minutes. To me, that's a fairly short movie for a book which has so many moving parts, so many in-depth characters. The version I'm watching is not 90 minutes. I'm pretty sure it's like 115 minutes. No, 105. Is it? I felt it was longer than 90 minutes, but it seemed to go on for a while. <laughs> oh, <dear>. oh. <laughs> Did you just watch Twilight again, Brie? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I did. <laughs> so having just read the book and having been in enchanted by all of these characters and the way that they interact with each other and the way that they are developed through the storyline, which is always going to happen in a book. The book is always better. I was a little disappointed with how one-dimensional some of the characters translated in film. And I'm talking in particular about Patrick. I thought that his character just seemed to be presented more as this goofball without exploring the other sides of his personality as well as in the story. I think he had an underlying air of confidence. It wasn't just a goofball. Mm. Confidence in who he was. 
Mm. More mature than his age in that sense and less mature in his the way he interacts in class. But if anyone was a goofball, it was Brad or he just looked like a goofball. <laughs> That's true too. <laughs> but Patrick just felt a little shiny, I think, for me in some ways. He just didn't seem to have that depth. I kind of felt in the book that he'd been around a few times, whereas this was just, I felt his reactions were just very teenage. Maybe we read him differently in the book because I thought he was a kind of shiny character in the book as well. Oh, did you? It's one of those people that has very high highs and very low lows and tends to the high, but when things go, they come off the rails quite quickly. Mm. I might be biased having seen the film first and then read the book, so maybe it coloured my reading of the character, but I didn't, when I was reading it, I didn't feel that it was inconsistent with what I'd seen. I thought I recognised the characters quite clearly from having seen the film. And that ties into the fact that Chbosky was the one that wrote the screenplay and was very closely involved in all aspects of it. It was insisted by him on it being made into a film. So I think maybe it's just the interpretation of the characters differed, but I think we probably saw a pretty close Patrick to what he had envisioned, or I would imagine that would be the case. Mm, The other one is that Charlie didn't seem quite so insightful in some ways. Throughout the book, he's watching, he is the wallflower and he's observing. So he's seeing people how they are. And he does a lot of watching in the movie, obviously, but he doesn't seem to get it quite right ever, whereas they make a big deal of him really getting them or really seeing them quite a lot throughout the novel. I just felt maybe it was just the immaturity of the actor. I don't know. I just felt that it was a little bit not quite full enough. But if you hadn't read the book, how would you feel about the movie, do you think? Well, I can't really say. I think I probably would have been more positive about it. And maybe it's because I read it and watched it in very close proximity that it's just coloured me. I didn't like that. Even the way that they looked to me is completely different to how I saw them in my head. It just... It really disappointed me in that way. I didn't mind the actor that played Charlie, but you're right. Without those keen observations that were so impressive in the book, he became just a little bit too quiet, I guess. It was like he was just being eager to please rather than Mm. truly insightful. I think that's what he was in many parts of the book, though. But I get what you're saying because there was something slightly different about the way that Charlie was portrayed as compared to the book. And I think it tended towards a bit more comedy or, I don't know, it didn't seem to be quite as abstract in a sense. Mm. Definitely worked in the movie in what I've seen of it so far because I've still got another 35 minutes or so to go. I was also disappointed by the the way they ignored his brother and sister and his relationship with them. In the movie, they were completely sidelined, especially the one with his sister, which is obviously there's this sister-brother love, I guess, and he does call her at one point where he's about to become catatonic. But in the book, there's this relationship between them where he sees his sister's boyfriend hit her and then he ends up, I guess, dobbing on her to the teacher and they fall apart for a while, but then they come back together because his sister falls pregnant and he takes her to help her have an abortion. And I just feel that that really solidified their relationship and that was not evident anywhere in the movie. That was a bit disappointing. For me, that was a really nice part of the story. Yeah, I thought if they were going to have that relationship at all, they should have expanded it and had more like the book where they were a bit opposed to each other. There was a lot of conflict early on and then ultimately they had a very strong relationship through adversity together. Mm. If they weren't going to have all of that, then they probably should have cut the sister altogether. Yeah. 
Yeah, because I was thinking I've only seen the first part and it's been similar to the book, but it obviously doesn't develop from there because they've no. laid the grounds for it with Ponytail, whatever his name is. You're right. In the book, that's a big thing that leads into more character development later on with the pregnancy and the abortion and how that brings Charlie and his sister together. But in the movie, we really just have that first part and it's half of the whole, mm. I thought, in the movie. Good point, Bree. I'll just flick back quickly to quotable quotes from it because probably the most quoted quote is that one from Mr. What's-His-Name, the teacher. Bill. About the love you deserve. Yeah, that's right. We accept the love we deserve, uh, we think we deserve, or something like that. Yeah. Is that where that quote comes from? I think so. I thought it was much older than that, and I thought I'd been hearing that for, for decades, but perhaps not. I feel like it was in another movie or another book. It doesn't appear to have. I think it's birthed in this. Mm, okay, interesting. I mean, the notion, I'm sure, has been around for a long time, but this succinct way of putting it, maybe not. I feel like I heard it in Batman. <laughs> <laughs> With great power comes great responsibility and we accept the love we think we deserve. <laughs> hmm. I thought the acting was fine. I thought the actors, Charlie, yes, we miss out on all the nuance of his observations, but as far as him acting the lines he was given, I thought he was okay. thought Sam was pretty good. Did you have any trouble with Sam in disconnecting her from being Hermione? Uh, no, she was a little bit younger than I thought she would look in this movie. I thought she'd be all post-Potter and looking a bit more adult, but I guess they obviously wanted to keep her at the 18 age, so they probably dressed her and made her up appropriately for that. So I was a bit surprised with how young she looked. Just trying to recall back to the end of Harry Potter, I thought felt she looked much older. Mm. It might be that we were also conditioned in movies such as this to have a person who's in their mid-20s playing the role of a... <laughs> the Dawson Creek effect. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I agreed with the acting. I thought they were pretty spot on. Maybe the only one that I didn't enjoy was Brad because he just looked so damn goofy. He did look goofy. <laughs> like, this is the, supposed to be the quarterback on the football team. He just didn't look like that. He looked like an extra from Animal House. <laughs> <laughs> it was shot well. And the music, that's one thing that you mentioned to us, I guess, outside of recording, Keith, is that when reading the book, there's a lot of songs that are described by Charlie that he mentions. And it's like the book has its own mixtape. See, we actually got to experience some of the songs and I thought that really worked in the movie. Yeah, it was a great soundtrack in the movie so far. And when I was reading it, like I said, it almost felt like I should be playing these songs in the background as part of the ambiance and part of feeling the story. They were mentioned many times in mixtapes and that whole very 90s and before thing to do, but it was pervasive through the book and I wanted to sort of extend beyond that and listen to it, but I haven't as yet. So if you don't have that link to that time and those particular songs, then it makes it a bit challenging when you're reading the book. You, Keith, said, oh, I feel like I want to listen to them and... I was a little bit annoyed that I didn't know them and just sort of moved past them and I, I felt you missed out a little bit if you weren't a bit of a musical, not snob, but had a good musical repertoire to be able to link and make those associations. I definitely wanted to go and have a listen to some of them just to get the, the feeling. Mm. I think for the movie, it's worth your time if you're a teen who isn't a reader, but I think if you're an adult that grew up in the 90s, then you really should pursue the book first. Or watch the movie because the movie was great. Mm. I, th I thought it was great. In standalone, having no idea about the book or its content, I loved the movie. Yeah, Brie, both you and Laurie sort of didn't give your final thoughts on the movie. You gave it a bit of darkness but didn't tell me the overall feeling. You just didn't like it at all? I just didn't like it. I don't know that I was distracted by watching Hermione. <laughs> I was. Were you? Yeah. I was distracted at two points. 
<laughs> oh, you're a disgrace. <sighs> I felt that it was just a bit disjointed. It didn't flow particularly well. Too many things were missing for me, having read this book and loved it and devoured it. Too many gaps. Because the timeline in the book jumps around a bit as well, so it's kind of hard to translate that directly into a movie, maybe. Mm. And, Laurie, you, I know you watched it in advance of this, like you'd seen it some years ago. and uh, It turns out I hadn't. Oh, I really? It all back. Mm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so in your- I feel like I either watched the trailer and nothing more <laughs> or I might have skim-watched it. Because didn't you found it lacking? And- yes, <laughs> in your manufactured memory of it, you were like, "Oh, that wasn't a very good movie." No, well, it turns out I was prophetic. <laughs> oh, so that's your final analysis as well. Uh, no, I, I think it's a fine movie, and I think I can understand completely why people enjoy it so much. But having just read the book and then immediately watched the movie, I really felt it lacked the nuance. And movies will always do that, right? But in this one in particular, the clever observations made by Charlie were absent and that's what saved the book to some degree for me. So I won't watch it again, but I understand why it would be popular. Well, I'm enjoying it so far. I'm going to finish watching it. So, so far I'm more in the Pat camp than the Laurie and Bree camp on that one. As all people of good sense should be. (laughs) (laughs) Do you want to do the summary score type thing? Yes, why not? Scoring with Pat! Hooray. Oh, yeah. Pretty pretty apt given the content of this book. <laughs> yes. uh, this book uh, for one star was a bad trip, a really bad trip, the kind of trip where you end up cold and half frozen lying in the snow. Two stars. It's a romantic homecoming party, but you've brought the wrong girl, unfortunately. Three, an engaging but slightly awkward encounter with a sportscaster at a gay beat. <laughs> Four, a slightly bittersweet kiss with someone who you know will never be more than your friend. Or five, a night drive, the perfect song, or the best milkshake you've ever tasted. <laughs> Laurie? Yeah, I think it falls in the middle for me. It was annoying at times because of Charlie's character, but it had some amazing stories and... It had a universality that really connected, but I guess it landed in the middle. Three stars. Brie? Five stars for me. I could not put it down. Devoured it. Keith? Yep. If I'm rating it in the moment, it's definitely five stars. Maybe retrospectively it might drop to four and a half, but I'm going to keep it in the moment. Five stars. Best milkshake. (laughs) Killer milkshake. It's a five for me too. This dealt with some seriously heavy stuff and it dealt with it in a beautiful fashion with some beautiful characters. Thanks, guys. Thank you. I think we should nominate Patrick to read Sweet Valley High <laughs> so that his average drops down a bit. <laughs> well, you never know. You never know, Brie. Don't write it off. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's very presumptuous. <laughs> I wanted to just put a quick thanks in to Ankarad, a.k.a. Tinted Edges, for some feedback left on several of our episodes. I've checked out your podcast, Lost the Plot, and it's really informative. So anyone who is interested in general book news should give it a listen was it good feedback or was it bad feedback? <laughs> no, it was it was really positive feedback. Yeah, it was really interesting. I hadn't actually seen feedback like that before on SoundCloud because we post all our episodes on SoundCloud and then they're hosted elsewhere like on iTunes and wherever else you get your podcasts from. But on SoundCloud, for those of you that don't use it regularly, you can 
make a comment at a certain point of time in the episode. So they were commenting on, on specific things we were saying, and that was really fun. So, yeah, I appreciated that too. Thanks a lot. Yeah, it was awesome. I was very touched personally because there were some comments about the very fun... Good night, Mr. Tom. Yes, good night, Mr. Tom. Fresh Prince tribute. Uh, and also <laughs> to Andrew and Elle, who gave some positive feedback on the much maligned Choose Your Own Adventure episode. <laughs> How is that much maligned? I think your racist accents are much maligned. But otherwise, that's a freaking awesome episode. Their feedback, they were almost demanding another. So I think we should do another. Listen at your own peril. But yeah, I'd love to do another. But I don't think I can listen to that one again. <laughs> you did excellent work, Keith. The goblins' appendages are coming back to me. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we just love to hear from listeners, so please get in contact. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, or just email us directly at seekingtumness at gmail.com. Thank you. Or if you want to comment on a particular thing we're saying, jump on SoundCloud and leave a comment on the soundtrack. Definitely, yeah, at the point in time where it's relevant. Or anywhere else. <laughs> yeah, why not? <laughs> Just scribble on a piece of paper and staple it to a pigeon and throw it our direction. <laughs> or listen to one of your classmates describe someone who you think might be a good dude and just send it to them. <laughs> It'll get to us eventually, probably. <laughs> Next episode, Bree goes boldly where few have gone before. Again! <laughs> I've got to read this little synopsis I saw on Goodreads for everyone. A beautiful and distinguished family, a private island, a brilliant damaged girl, a passionate political boy, a group of four friends, the liars, whose friendship turns destructive, a revolution, an accident, a secret, lies upon lies, true love, the truth. I thought you were going to say true lies, and I was getting really excited. <laughs> See, it's like the OC in book form. It's going to be amazing. Mm. It sounds like Enid Blyton's slightly more grown up. <laughs> I was thinking maybe Lord of the Flies. <laughs> no, it's not Pretty Little Liars or an episode of Revenge. It's We Were Liars by E. Lockhart. Until then, if you have a friend named Charlie that is struggling to understand all the craziness of the world, then shun! Shun! The non-believer! <laughs> Candy Mountain! <laughs> Magically a pluridon, Charlie. <laughs> Speaking of the nineties, <laughs> and keep reading. I'm still seeking I'm still seeking <laughs> I don't get it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>